0: the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: One of my favorite excuses for not going to church, and I've heard a lot over the years, but one of my favorite comes from a seven-year-old boy in Plain City, Utah. Now you see, he didn't want to go, so he hopped in his parents' car early on Sunday morning. He pulled out of the driveway and took off down the road. Now in case you didn't hear me, he was only age seven. Well, it didn't take too long before local police began receiving complaints about a driver in a white Dodge Intrepid that was out of control and all over the road. And when deputies located the vehicle and turned on their flashers, the boy just refused to pull over. Instead, he led the police on a low speed chase through the streets of Plain City. Sheriff's Lieutenant Matthew Bell said there was a practical reason. There was a realistic reason why this boy never went over 40 miles an hour. Bell said this his speed was slow, but erratic because the boy would kind of scoot down lower to push on the gas and then sit back up to be able to see where he was going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the chase finally ended when the boy pulled back into the driveway of his home and he hopped out of the car and then he just took off running as fast as he could into the garage. And the boy explained that he had a good reason he didn't want to go to church. It was just too hot on that day to sit in church. You've been there. All right. Maybe, you know, like the uh, story of the preacher who stands at the door as the people left church and the pastor saw a man he hadn't seen in a while. So he leaned in and he told him, you need to join the army of the Lord. And the man looked back at the pastor and said, I'm already in the army of the Lord. And then the pastor had to know, well, how come I don't see you except for at Christmas and at Easter? And the man just whispered back real quietly, I'm in the secret service. (laughs) Long ago, Someone compared going to church to attending a ball game and came up with a list of reasons that they quit going to ball games. Allow me to read it in case you've never heard this one. Number one on this list is whenever I go to a game, they ask for money. Number two, the other fans don't care about me. Or three, the seats are too hard. The coach never visits me. The referee makes calls that I don't agree with. Some of the games go into overtime and make me late for my meal. The band plays songs I don't know. And I have other things to do at game time. My parents, they took me to too many games when I was growing up. And number 10, I know more than the coaches do. Number 11, I can be just as good a fan at the lake or in the woods alone. And number 12, I won't take my kids to a game either. They must choose for themselves which teams to follow. Well, the cold hard truth is that people work hard on excuses for not going to church. But I wanna challenge you this morning to drop this line of thinking. Just forget about it altogether. I wanna challenge you to actually stop going to church because church is not something that you go to. Just to sit through, just to endure, it's not a club where you pay your dues and come a few times a year. You see, for the redeemed people of God, the called out people of God, churches, what you are. Every single day and being together here matters because I would dare to say that if a person believes that they can worship God, serve God and grow in their faith, that all that God wants them to be apart from the local church, such a person is living outside of the will of God is trying to make the Bible fit into their own religion. You see, this morning, I want to challenge you to stop the mindset of just coming here to come to church, but instead to live out all that it means to be the church. Even better than that, let's become implanted in the lives of the other people here. And that is what the author of Hebrews is about to teach us in the word of God this morning, that there is a relationship between faith, hope and love, faith, hope and love. You see, faith in God leads believers to place their hope in his promises, restoring this relationship with God, then prompts believers to restore their relationship with others and love for God demonstrates itself, of course, in love for others. And you can see this outline of the text as we walk through it this morning in verse 22 is the command. Let us draw near verse 23 has the command to hold fast with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then verse 24, let us consider one another. So move into our text with me this morning. Hebrews 10 starts us off with verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Now, if you have been here most weeks, then you know that the author has spent five chapters, five entire chapters, explaining that Christ's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Five chapters telling us that the new covenant is better than the old Mosaic covenant. So this is quite the transition here in the text where he says, therefore, brethren here in verse 19, a significant transition in the text towards the application that should be there in the life of the believer. Now, Exodus 20 tells us at Mount Sinai before God gave his people the Mosaic covenant, the people were in fear. Do you remember the text? It says in the word of God that they trembled because they had seen lightning flashes. They had heard the noise of thunder. The mountain was smoking. Good grief. That will get your attention when the mountains smoking. And so the the people, what did they do? It says that they wanted Moses to go up there and speak with God. They didn't want any part in that. They didn't want to go up a smoking mountain. So they wanted Moses to go up there for fear of their own death. But see, what Hebrews is telling us is that we don't have to live that way. Hebrews is telling us we can approach God with boldness. We can enter into the holiest, the very presence of God, because we have the righteousness of Christ in us, given to us by his blood. Again, in verse 20, we are given this concept that the high priests in the Old Testament had to pass through a veil in the tabernacle to get to the most holy place. It was the most sacred place on earth in the back of the tabernacle. Only after the high priest was cleansed could he even approach on one day a year, even for the other priests. It was completely off limits. And when the tabernacle was replaced by the the temple, what happened? Well, this giant veil, it was still there separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and the people. And when the temple was rebuilt after the destruction by the Babylonians, we know that at the time of Christ, this veil was no small thing. It was 60 feet long. It was 30 feet high and it was six inches thick. Now, this is the veil spoken of in Matthew 27, that at the death of Christ, that when he died, Scripture says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the quaked, and the rocks were split. You see, the veil was a remarkable statement to the Jewish people that they could just not approach God willy nilly, however they wanted to do it. And this same privilege that the high priest had, we have now been given in Jesus Christ because now we have access to God through the sacrifice of Christ, his flesh. You see, he's telling us that as believers in Christ, we can and we should approach God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. His sacrifice provided a new living way for us when the temple veil was born and access to God was granted through Christ because it was more than just a veil that was torn. It was our Savior's body, his very body that was torn. This boldness in verse 19, let's be clear on this. It's not arrogance. It's not this man centered arrogance, but instead it is the freedom that you and I have to express to God, the very concerns that we have in our hearts. See for the redeemed church, the called out people of God, we shouldn't fear approaching God, both Jews and Gentiles. God's people have been welcomed in to the very presence of God. Now, this confidence before God should be there. We should have a freedom to express the thoughts of the heart before God. You see, Hebrews is telling us that a believer can approach God. We've been emboldened. Why? Not because of anything we've done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't have to approach God in half-hearted weakness, kind of fearing it. We can approach God with the power of the risen living Christ. In 2015, researchers at the University of California Berkeley announced that they would be part of a hundred million dollar project for space travel to see if there's intelligent life in the universe. Let's just cut to the chase. There's not. I can save them a hundred million dollars, but they decided that they'd spend a hundred million dollars on this project to see if there is in fact, intelligent life. And the plan was actually, as you can see, to send nanocrafts like spaceship butterflies traveling at one-fifth the speed of light to Alpha Centauri. Stephen Hawking said at the time that here was the purpose of all this. It's important to know if we are alone in the dark. But I don't think, you see, the people at Berkeley are the only ones who want to know if they're alone. I think all mankind is wrestling with this. Many people struggle with loneliness from the rich and famous to the poor and unknown. Oscar winning actress Anne Hathaway, she confessed this very famous. She said, loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing I'm most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or someone who will care for me. Joss Whedon, some of you recognize that name, the director of the movie of the Avengers. He said that loneliness is about the scariest thing that is out there. Albert Einstein, he said, it's strange to be known so universally and yet be so alone. But just like those nanocrafts, you see, what do we do? We constantly in our lives, we send out these tiny little probes, emotional nanocrafts, if you will, to find out whether we're alone in the dark. They move fast and they are small, so it can be easy to miss them. They can be small little statements that we like to make, like, did you see the game last night? They can be much more pointed. They can say things like, I don't think I'll ever call my dad again. Or maybe it's a deeper connection you're trying to make. I'm not sure my wife even loves me. These little probes that we send out, these little probes that we speak with our words, our bids for an emotional connection, we start with them before we can even talk. A baby crying is what? A bid to connect. And as we grow older, these invitations to connect take on other forms. But think about a baby. A baby is trying to connect when they cry. And, and that's what we do. It can be a question. It can be a look. It can be a touch. Any single expression that says, I want to feel connected to another person in my life. I want to feel connected to you. What did the Lord say all the way back in Genesis two? He said that it's not good for man to be alone. This is part of the purpose of the church to connect, to remind one another that, hey, we're not alone. We come together to spread the glory of God. And the promise we have from Hebrews 10 is knowing that God has not left us alone. We have direct access to him. Let's pick up our text again in verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you guys remember in this text that every year on the day of atonement, the high priest of Israel would wash before going into the holy place? And the author is telling us that we've been permanently once for all cleansed by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. This is what gives us access because our high priest is over the house of God. He perfectly represents us before God. And so we draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith. It is Christ who is over the house of God and the house of God is not a building. It's his people. And you see the author, he's going back. He's going back to the argument of chapter three in the text where he compared Moses as the leader of Israel. And he said that Christ is the head of the church. Remember what Peter said? Peter said this. He said, you also as living stones are being built up a what spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It is Christ who reigns over his people. And Hebrews is telling us the guilt for our sins should absolutely be gone. Our hearts should be true before him. A true heart means we can come before God with sincerity. We don't have to fake it. It's it's not about rituals. It's not about checking off that box that you went to church. I did it. I actually got up and went to church on Sunday. You see, we should approach God with the assurance that Christ's death has removed our guilt for sin and made us acceptable to God and unsettled and bold confidence that God has provided full access to God through Christ's sacrifice and that we can get to God in the presence of God through Christ alone. So our worship is to be pure. It is to be undivided. It is to be sincere. In other words, it's saying this. If anything else is competing with your time, if anything else is competing with your attention in your worship of God, your mind is divided before God, isn't it? full assurance of faith. This is the inner conviction that must be rooted in faith, trust in the revealed word of God. I actually think this is one of the reasons churches don't preach the word of God anymore. They won't say it. They won't actually admit it from the pulpit. They don't go that far. But in their heart of hearts, I don't think most churches trust the word of God. They don't trust that God will work through his simple word. So they reason to themselves. Hey, we better get clever. We better keep it short. We better be done by noon and we better keep people entertained. You see, I'm not, I'm not sure how Christians are supposed to trust God's word in their lives when pastors are not trusting it in the pulpit. This unbelief among the people of God was warned about back in chapter three, where the author said, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. That's what God thinks about it. An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Trust in his word. Trust that we can approach God. The writer says our hearts have been sprinkled. It's a reference back to Moses when he sprinkled the people with blood, when the Mosaic covenant was ratified. The new covenant was ratified at the death of Christ and the blood of Christ has been metaphorically sprinkled on his people, meaning that we can look to the sacrifice of his blood for the assurance that we are acceptable before a holy and righteous God only the redemptive work of Christ applied through that regeneration that can produce a good conscience. See our bodies washed with pure water. What is this talking about? Well, it could be a reference to water baptism as the outward sign of the inward cleansing, but more likely, I think it's this, I think it's this symbolic wording here that is based on the purification rites that they had in the Levitical priests which would be more in line with this context. In other words, it's a reference to the washing of regeneration because that's what regeneration does. It washes us. And if that is the correct understanding, then the pure water is the word of God. You see, instead of literal water that was used in the Old Testament by the priests, he's saying we've been cleansed as believers in Christ. We have been set apart and it is our privilege to be able to serve God. So keep living for Jesus Christ. Amen which is why verse 23 reads like this. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Joseph Stoll, some of you might remember the name. He used to be the president down at Moody Bible Institute. And he told the story of a time when he went and visited a home that was for children who were mentally handicapped. And as he walked through the halls, he noticed the windows were covered. You ever been in one of these places where they're just covered with little tiny handprints? And I mean, this place, it was not just a couple handprints. There was handprints everywhere. And he asked the director of the place. He said, why are there handprints all over every single window? I mean, they're just all covered with these tiny little handprints. And he was told that in no certain terms, these children were taught about Jesus And how much they understood is hard for us to know. But the children were so eager for Jesus Christ to return that they were constantly just leaning on those windows as they looked up at the sky. And see, when I hear something like this, it makes me think that they're not the ones that are handicapped because maybe we're handicapped because we've let our pride get in the way when we face the difficult times rather than having that simple, simple faith that Jesus Christ is coming back. Hebrews reminds us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful, faith, hope, and love. I hope you see it all throughout this text drawn near with a true heart and full assurance of faith in verse 22 hope now in verse 23 and i think the king james does a misstep here in verse 23 by referring to it as faith because the word should be hope now key in on that phrase confession of our hope let's get specific let's not be vague let's get real specific about what this is it is the believer's confident expectation of a future You see that we are being told here that we can live for Christ with full confidence that Christ will fulfill all that he has promised. It's hope that is based on the deity of Christ. It is hope based on his cross. It is hope based on his resurrection, hope based on knowing that he controls the future. The author didn't want the Christians turning back, wavering in their faith. It is the faithfulness of God that holds us. Philippians 1, 6 comes to mind where Paul said, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will what? Complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But that was the history of the Jewish people, wasn't it? They turned back. They turned back. They turned back. They turned back from the God who had rescued them. They died in the wilderness instead of going into the promised land. But in Christ, these believers We can be different. It didn't matter what kind of pressure was put before them. They were told to hold the line. You see, when they were converted, when they were baptized, they had made a confession of faith. And so the author saying, stay the course, hold on to what you professed before. Without the completed canon of the New Testament, and I could not imagine how difficult it had to be for them. It would have been easy to stumble in their faith, but God had made the promise of a future inheritance in Christ. Our hope is tied directly to this promise, the promise of God. God will be faithful. The only question is, will we be faithful? Because if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, there's times when we feel like giving up, isn't there? If we're going to be honest, there's times where we just feel like giving in. And in those times, Hebrews encourage us to remember God's faithfulness. He's saying, tighten your grip, bear down, tighten your grip on your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let it slip away. Don't let the world change you. Don't let the pressures of life change you. Hold fast to our hope that is grounded in Christ. Because when a believer has his hope fixed on Christ and he relies on the faithfulness of God, he's not going to waver. Instead of looking back to the old covenant, the Hebrew believers were being told to look ahead to the coming of the Lord. Now, our text, again, starting in verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's an old saying written long ago about two men who went to church and we're going to call the first man Mike, because I don't think we have anyone named Mike here. But Mike, he went to church on Sunday morning and he heard the pianist miss a note and he kind of cringed. and he saw a teenager not close their eyes when everyone else was bowed in prayer. Mike was convinced people were watching to see what he put into the offering and it made him angry. And he caught the pastor make five different stumbles in his wording during the summer, Our sermon. That's funny, I, I didn't plan that. I really didn't. That's awesome is what it is. He slipped out the side door during the closing hymn and he said to himself, what a bunch of hypocrites, I'm leaving. Well, Charles, he also went to that church. He heard the pianist play, A Mighty Fortress is Our God and ministered to his soul. He heard a young girl take a moment to give a testimony on the difference that faith had made in her life. He appreciated that the church was starting to get involved in local missions, and Charles, he was thankful for the sermon because it answered a question that had been bothering him. And Charles left that church on that Sunday thinking, how could anyone come here and not feel the presence of God? Both men, Both men went to the same church on the same morning, and each man found exactly what he was looking for. Let us consider one another, the author says. None of these words here are a suggestion. This is not a suggestion. This isn't just a good idea. This isn't telling us, hey, it might be a good idea while you hold fast to the faith to just toss in a little encouragement to one another. You see, if you belong to the family of God, you actually have a responsibility to encourage others. And this is not something you can do if you stay home. You see, like it or not, we actually need each other. Because if everyone just stayed home whenever we felt like it, if everyone just stayed home when there was a few bumps in the road of life, this church and every other biblical church out there on the face of this earth would close. And I would have you notice that love and good works in the text need to be stirred up. They don't just happen on their own. We are being told that we as believers in Christ can have a tremendous impact in the lives of other people. And it is for this reason that we are told to gather together as the body of Christ. Now, the persecution of the Hebrew believers had forced some of the Christians to slide. Fear had set in. The people needed to encourage one another to remain faithful to the Lord. This happens when we're together. You don't encourage one another when you're sitting at home by yourself in your bed. The author means the local physical gathering of believers. But what does this mean here to exhort one another? Well, it means to come alongside and inspire someone else with the truth. God's truth. God designed believers to need one another. You see, when Christians choose to stay home, they're saying with their actions, I'm not choosing to love my fellow believers in Christ. That's it. That's what they're saying. I care more about my own comfort more than I do about the need and responsibility that I have to meet together to encourage one another. To neglect the church is to neglect your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is to abandon them. Now, you wouldn't do that to your own family. So why would you do that to your church family? And notice how this is all tied into the end of the verse. Exhort one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, he's saying, be accountable to each other because the day is coming when we will each give an account to God. These words tucked under the end of verse 25, so much more as you see the day approaching. These are amazing words here. They certainly could be a reference to the return of Christ. And I think that's what it is. I think based on the context, based on verse 37, they probably are just this. But hear me on this. They may also be an allusion to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Let me explain why some people think it's this. Jesus had already predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. You guys remember that Luke 19 tells us now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make you for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you. And your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's the time of your visitation? Time when Christ came to Jerusalem. See, Jesus predicted this. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, because that generation of Israel was under the judgment of God. By this time, Peter had already died. Paul was already dead. And the events that were leading up to the Jewish Roman war were happening right as this letter were being written. And it's possible, very possible that the author of this letter had actually caught in word that the Roman troops were on the march towards Jerusalem. Do you understand the world they lived in and the pressure from the Jews on the Hebrew believers in Christ would have only gotten stronger when the time came to mount a defense in Jerusalem. You see, any discerning believer in Christ at that time should have been able to see it coming because the handwriting was literally on the wall. The generation of the Hebrew people that demanded the death of Christ were under judgment. But this generation was now coming to a close. And in short time, what was going to happen? Titus would lead the 10th Roman Legion into the land of Israel and he would destroy the city and he would destroy the temple. And this would bring an end to the sacrifices and the rituals. And the old covenant could not function without the temple. Both the land and the people would be put under the authority of the Roman government. And if the author had this in mind, the destruction that would come in Jerusalem, the teaching to the Christians was to be faithful to Christ, even though they knew their city was about to be destroyed by pagan Romans, even though they knew that. You see, I think there's a powerful lesson here that our allegiance is to Christ before allegiance to any nation. And the darker the days get, the more that we need each other. Instead of trying to figure out how to make the church more like the world, we need to work on making the church more like Jesus Christ. He's telling the believers, be patient, continue in the faith. Don't try to survive on your own because you're going to fail miserably if you try it on your own, because in God's plan, the nation of Israel was about to be removed. It was about to be judged and put on a shelf for a couple of thousand years, only to be taken up in the last days. Now the rest of the story about Jerusalem and the people is told to us from history. It's that the church in Jerusalem, they did stick together. We know that they suffered and they were persecuted together. But eventually the persecution drove them out of Jerusalem and in the sovereign plan of God, it spared the believers from the death and destruction that came under the Roman general Titus. But this we know, whatever the original intent of verse 25, we do know this, that the day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming And the context of the verse, it tells us that this is probably what the author of Hebrews had in mind, because you remember back in chapter nine, verse 28, he already told us. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so when we see the day, that phrase mentioned in our text, we need to understand that the New Testament is consistent, that this is a reference to the day of Christ. And don't confuse the day of the Lord with the day of Christ, because the day of the Lord is a time of judgment when the Lord returns to the earth to judge the nations of this world. But the day of Christ is a much happier time because it's when the church is taken up to be with our Savior at the rapture. And based on the wording and based on the context of verse 37, that's the probable reference in our passage that even though God's people suffer now, keep in mind the rapture of the church. Keep looking up the coming of the Lord in the air to catch away his bride before the day of wrath begins. This is the blessed hope of the church. You see, God would never forsake us. God would never do that to his people. But some Christians think nothing of forsaking him or his people. Hebrews is telling us, as we draw closer to his return, live together for him, always awaiting our savior. I was reading this past week about a poor community in Paraguay that has formed an amazing orchestra that plays instruments created from recycled trash. The young musicians come from the city of Cateura, a slum that is built on a landfill. It's more than 1,500 tons of trash get dumped into this landfill every single day. About a thousand people actually make their living by picking through this garbage, picking through this trash. If you're able to look up at this screen, you are far richer financially than you ever, ever even knew. They make their living by picking through the garbage and seeing what they can sell. But a man by the name of Fabio Chavez decided to do something about this. He's a musician. So he figured he could teach kids music he has infused this landfill with music. When Chavez saw the desperate poverty, what did he do? He opened up a tiny little school. And at first he he loaned out his complete supply of five instruments, that's all he had, so he loaned them out. But he had too many students, so what do you do? So he asked some of the trash pickers to make some instruments, make their own instruments from recycled materials to keep the younger kids busy. Eventually, the students learned to play a small orchestra of instruments redeemed, literally, made out of the garbage. A cello that was made out of an oil can and old cooking tools. A flute made from tin cans. A drum set that used old x-ray films as the skins. That's pretty creative. Bottle caps that serve as the keys for a saxophone a violin made from a battered aluminum salad bowl and strings tuned with forks. They have become known worldwide as the recycled orchestra, and they play all kinds of music. They play classical music, folk tunes, and even some more modern music. Now, Chavez claims that this amazing story has taught him at least one profound lesson, and here's what I want you to listen to. He said this, People realize we shouldn't throw away trash carelessly. Well, we shouldn't throw away people either. See, Christ has redeemed every single one of us from a spiritual landfill. And he has brought us together to play some beautiful music. But I don't honestly understand, and I'm going to tell you this, I don't understand when one recycled instrument starts thinking it's better than the next. That's nothing but pride. That's nothing but arrogance. That's nothing but living for yourself. And if you want to live for yourself, go ahead. You have your reward right here, right now. That's all you're going to get. But if you want to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, come together. Come together with God's people and make some music. But it starts with this attitude change, a shift in our thinking from coming to church to being the church, being the body of Christ that he has already intended us to be. Praying for one another. Let me ask you this. How much time did you spend this last week praying for specific people in our church? Reaching out to one another. Reach out with a call, a text. Find someone you don't know in this church and have them over for dinner. Come early. Stay late so you can come alongside and get to know other believers. Have you guys ever wondered why my family and I are here late into the afternoon on Sundays? It's because we've cleared our calendar purposely, not just because it's my job. We believe it. We sit here on Sunday afternoons just so we can spend time with God's people. I challenge you to do that. And if someone walks in through the door, that's brand new. Break off your conversation with your friends and go talk to them. When was the last time that you did something thoughtful for another person? besides your own local family, but how about someone in the church family? For no other reason than to let them know that you care, you care about them. Let me ask you this, are you involved in the ministry here in some way, using your talents and your gifts to serve other people? Or let's say it like this, don't tell me what you can't do, tell me what you can do. A lot of Christians are living their lives with an emptiness inside and they feel alone And a lot of it is because one way or another, too many Christians are forsaking the church and they're missing out on all that beauty that God has created in them, that God intends for you to share with other people. So don't miss out on a family of people who want to actually love you and who enjoy being with you on this journey called the Christian life. Make room for us in your life because we desperately need you here. And whether you realize it or not, you need us. You desperately do. If you've ever been down to the redwoods, one of the things you learn about those trees is that they actually have very, very shallow roots. They only go down about six to 12 feet into the ground, but they're interlocked. They're interwoven in such a way with each other that they are able to hold up those gigantic loads of weight. And see, we need those same type of roots, don't we? To stand during the enormous weight of life. We live in a world so focused on self, it's ridiculous. But Christ is calling on us to live, to serve. And when you discover people in the church that you can be open with, honest with, real with, you find support in your life. You find yourself to be a little less alone. And then it starts to bring that accountability to how we live for Jesus Christ. So I want to end with this this morning. Paul reminds us in Romans 12, he says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. May God's word challenge our thinking, our attitudes, and our lives this day and every day this week.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687.